Hello, Secret Squad. I'm Robin McGraw. Welcome to a brand new episode of I've Got a Secret. This week, we're tackling a taboo topic, money. Whether you're earning it, saving it, investing it, or losing it, nobody seems to want to actually talk about it. Well, because of this, I called up my favorite money expert, Tanya Rapley, to join me to talk about, well, the secret to fab finances. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you so much for having me. I love that. (laughs) Or losing it. (laughs) Or losing it, sadly. Well, let me tell everyone about you because I am thrilled that you're here with me today to talk just about this very important topic. Tanya is the founder of the award-winning site, MyFab Finance. This website is a leading educational resource for anyone wanting to become financially empowered. Tanya's mission is to educate others to become, well, financially free and do more of what they love. So thank you so much for being here and helping me educate everyone today, Tanya. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for the warm welcome. (laughs) Well, listen, I have to tell you, I have just been so excited about tackling this topic because I did say taboo topic at the top of this podcast, but I actually think this is a very, very important topic. I think it's something that we all need to talk about. It's just really exciting to me to have you here and to be able to have you share everything you know with all of the listeners out there. So let's get started right away. So let me ask you this, what got you started and what got you wanting to spend your life dedicated on the topic of finance? Well, I can tell you it wasn't in my plans. It's not exactly what I thought I would do. I got into personal finance because I was doing nonprofit work uh, for a organization throughout Brooklyn and I was creating community programming. And during creating that community programming, I created a financial education workshop And I'm sitting in the back of the program to make sure everything goes smoothly. And I'm like, you could really benefit from this information. It's time for you to stop acting like your finances are going to autocorrect. And so that's when, um, at that time, I was dirt poor in New York City. I was making like maybe $27,000 a year um, and paying my rent and everything in New York. And so I went to the library and checked out all the books that I could on personal finance and just started learning and then reading, you know, different forums and stuff, things that I could do. I started with my credit. And once I started, I was like, oh, this isn't as bad as I thought it was. Uh I know a lot of people who are like me who think it's worse than this. So let me help people who think this is more difficult than it is and break it down and make finances approachable, relatable, and fun. And so that was in 2013. And here we are today. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Well, tell everyone what MyFab Finance offers. Yeah, so MyFab Finance, we offer tips, tools, and courses on helping people break the cycle of living paycheck to paycheck. That's mm-hmm. our focus. Um, and it is breaking the cycle of living paycheck to paycheck so they can do more of what they love. Because I realize that there aren't enough people who know what it is they enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. And so what I don't want to happen is that my audience become financially free or secure and then they still aren't enjoying or living fulfilled lives. Mm-hmm. So we focus on both of those things, becoming financially free and offering courses on that, and then helping people discover what their purpose is and doing what they love with their newfound financial freedom. Wow, I think that's so wonderful because uh, do you agree that 
everyone, of course, wants to be financially stable. They want to be able to not live paycheck to paycheck. But it's something that you do have to learn. It's something that you need the experts to tell you because it is almost next to impossible to do it on your own. Do you agree? I mean, to an extent, I think that a lot of people have the common sense necessary mm-hmm. and the common right. sense that's needed, but it's just about really understanding a few things, you know, how to make your money work for you, um, how to get ahead financially, understanding when you have an income issue or a money management issue, because for some people they make enough, but they aren't spending it wisely. Mm-hmm. And so it's that. And then it's also normalizing financial questions and seeing examples of people succeeding financially. I think that's been one of the big things as far as creating community with my fab finance, even me with my own peer group, is allowing people to see what it looks like that people in their their group or their community can become financially secure. And this is what it looks like because mm-hmm. that's inspiring. That inspires people to achieve something other than what they've always seen. That's so true. At the very top, again, I talked about it being a taboo topic. Do you think that's true? Do you think talking about finances is a taboo topic? Unfortunately, yeah. I think it's becoming less taboo. I would have to say that myself and colleagues in the industry, you know, other financial bloggers and so forth are making it more normal to talk about finances. Um, But it still is, you know, it's one of those things where I remember the first time I shared my financial situation, my mom was like, why are you sharing that with the internet? Why are you putting that information out there? And it's it's important. It's important whether we're talking about salary negotiation, whether we're talking about understanding your credit score and what is or what isn't okay. Because if you don't have a baseline to compare it to, which is often gu- guided or often discovered when having conversations with others, then you don't know how you're performing. So That's- yes, it is taboo, but it needs to. I, I think that we're slowly peeling back that curtain on having financial conversations. That's so true. I, You know, I it makes you wonder why it's not a subject that they start teaching as young as elementary school. Oh, Robin, I know exactly why. Um, I mean, honestly, I financial insecurity and I don't want to say poverty, but financial insecurity is profitable. A purely financially literate population is not profitable. You know, we're not, then they're less likely to go in debt and ring up credit card debt and pay those excessive fees. They're less likely to need loans and so forth. Finance companies wouldn't make a lot of money. And, you know, a lot of the pillars of our society are in the finance industry. And so it's just not profitable to have a financially literate population overall. But that's why it's important for people to educate their children at home. That's not to say that you can't educate at home and you can't lead by example. And I know that some parents don't feel like they're equipped for that. But in the same sense, I didn't feel equipped when I became a mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my son is two. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're going to let me take home this human. I don't know what I'm doing, but you learn, you learn what you need to learn. That's and so the so same true. thing is with personal finance and teaching our children about personal finance. That's, that's so true. You know, both Philip and I grew up poor. Our, both of our families, you know, struggled. And I can remember that when Philip and I were first married and we uh, were talking about starting a family we had that conversation that, you know, well, we need to make sure that uh, we need to think about this and make sure that we can afford to bring a child into the world and raise the child, him or her, and educate our child before we think about having another one. Our first one now is 40 years old, but I still remember that conversation we had. We had to think about it before we started our family. 
It's important. It really is. And, you know, everybody doesn't have the luxury to think about it ahead of time and so forth. As a financial educator, I, I just had my first child two years ago, mm-hmm. but I spent the past like four or five years preparing for his arrival. Um, and, you know, now being in the finance space, there's so many other things that I have to learn, especially now that he's not going to daycare because of everything going on. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, how do I teach him? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I make sure that he's learning his ABCs and that he's not behind? But it, it, the good thing about it is if a parent or anyone feels unprepared to talk to their children about finances, but you're learning, you can teach them as well. And so you can kind of go in the same vein. I agree. I think it's a topic that should be discussed within the family from the moment the children are born, really. It's just, it shouldn't be a taboo topic. It should be something discussed as if you're discussing the family vacation or, you know, religion, everything that's talked at home within the family. Finances should be talked about as well. How would you define financial wellness? That's a good question. Financial wellness is essentially doing things with money that enhance your life, that make you feel better about yourself, that don't contribute to stress and so forth. And so for some people that is, and I think it varies depending on the person. So for some people that is having excessive money, amount of money in their savings account, for some people that is not having any debt, for some people that is having a salary that they're comfortable with, and for some people that's all of the above. And so I just think that um, for me, financial wellness is being in a position where I don't have to worry about my finances and that I know that I'm doing things so that my finances are working for me even when I'm not working. That's so true. I think uh, so really financial wellness is a, is a, a term that is a different meaning for everyone. I think anyone can define that term differently. Don't you agree? I agree. Every, I think it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, I think it's, it might be different in different phases of our lives too. That's so, true. That's true. you know, right now it looks a certain way for me as I near retirement, it's going to look differently. Um, mm-hmm. And my same for my parents who are now nearing retirement, it looked different for them when they were starting out and starting their family. That's so true. What, what are your tips for creating a realistic budget? Oh, <laughs> a realistic budget. I mean, your budget should be based on what your expenses are currently. I think that too many times people create pie in the sky budgets based on what they wish they could do or what they wish they were doing instead of what they're actually doing. Mm-hmm. So the best thing, in my opinion, is to sit down, print out your account statements, look at what you're spending your money on, put those categories down on paper and then figure out, okay, where are areas that we can cut back on so that we can do more of what works well for our money or what, what contributes to our financial well-being. Mm-hmm. So that might be, you know, for some people it might be dining out less. For some people it might be cutting out um, an expense that's unnecessary, such as um, routine, you know, dermatology appointments and so forth. So um, it is, printing out your expenses and then creating your budget from there um, rather than adopting someone else's budget that doesn't apply to your lifestyle. True. So when you say sit down and come up with your budget, how would you suggest telling someone to, when they want to come up with their budget, of course, prioritize? How do they start? The number one priority when you're creating a budget should be your essentials. And so what are the things that regardless of what happens, you need to pay for them? So that's, you know, housing, that is food, that is any medications or so forth. There's utilities, if you need to have a car payment, so transportation, 
to get back and forth to work. For some people, that's childcare. So look at those essential items first and then build out around there because those are the things that most likely can't be subtracted unless you can find a way to downsize or um, you know reduce your costs. Those are different things you can do to minimize it, but they're still going to be an expense unless you um, are able to eliminate them altogether, such as moving in with a family member or something mm -hmm. of that nature. But start with your essential and then build in your non-essentials. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Are there apps that can help with this? There are a few apps. I mean, I know there's one app in particular that a few people in my audience love, the Clarity app, like gaining clarity on your finances that really helps get a picture of what you're spending your money on. Mint, of course, is tried and true. And, and a lot of people really do like Mint. Um, and then there's You Need a Budget. And so there are a few ones. I'm an old school girl, so mm -hmm. I like paper and pencil. Uh -huh. um, so I don't necessarily use any apps because I like to subtract and cross off and erase and everything yes. else. And so, but yeah, Mint, Clarity, You Need a Budget are all really good ones. Oh, that's wonderful. In fact, for all the listeners right now, I will uh, tell you that we'll have those on I've Got a Secret with RobinMcGraw.com. So we'll list those and you can go and uh check out our site and look at all of those that we just mentioned. So I think that's great. And the hard part, how do you suggest actually sticking to that budget? Because, I mean, it's hard, first of all, to come up with the budget, but then it's even harder sometimes to stick to that budget. How do you suggest yeah. doing that? I think that happens to a lot of people, right? They create a budget and they're like, okay, I did it. Now yeah. it's going to fix my finances. It's like, no, now the hard part starts <laughs> because now it's the behavioral shift. And one of the, good, one of the um, tips that I suggest is when you create your budget, have a goal in mind. And so anytime you're thinking of doing anything that is not in alignment with your budget, you're not just associating it with your budget, you're associating it with your goal. And so by making this purchase, I'm taking away from this goal. Me and my family, we just moved into our new home and I knew I was gonna to want to make renovations. So before even moving into this home, I had my budget in mind. And so anytime I was thinking about making a purchase outside of it, I was like, this is gonna take away from that bathroom you want. What's, what's most important right now? And so looking at your goal and basing your decisions on that goal and not necessarily the budget to keep you in line and to um, hold you accountable for what you said you would do. Um, another one is to find an accountability partner. And so your accountability partner could be your spouse. It could be a relative. It could be a friend. It could be a group of people. So in my instance, my accountability partner was my husband um, and my younger sister, especially when I just got started. And they were really helpful in keeping me on point when it came to my budget. And then um, lastly, I would say just find, understand what your triggers are. Everyone has spending triggers. A lot of us, you know, sometimes it's just being there in the store and seeing it. Sometimes it's being on social media. Other times it is, you know, major life transitions, such as moving into a home. And so be mindful of what your triggers are and try your best not to put yourself in scenarios where you will be triggered to spend outside of your budget. So sometimes that means not going to the grocery store. If it makes more sense for you to order pickup, which usually is, um, which usually is free, so you don't go into the grocery store and grab a whole bunch of things you don't need, but rather than what you absolutely need and what you ordered online, you just go pick it up and go home about your business, then do that. So figure out what your triggers are and then minimize those triggers. Wow, I love all of that. I love all of those uh, points. So uh, now let's talk about existing debt. Where should someone even start when trying to eliminate their debt? 
you have to decide what debt elimination strategy you want to adopt. And so some people like to do the snowball method, which I'm a fan of because I like small wins. So with the snowball method, you look at what your smallest debt is and pay that off first. Mm -hmm. And then go to the next the next smallest debt and you use whatever money you were using to pay that smallest debt off and apply that to the next one. You keep on building from there. So you're literally building momentum and building that ball and rolling it downhill towards your largest debt. So some people like to start there. Um, another one, another strategy is the debt that is costing you the most money. Mm -hmm. So look at the one that has the highest interest rates or fees attached and pay that off first because it is taking the most money out of your bank account bank account comparatively. Mm -hmm. And then I call the other the, another strategy the annoying debt. It's the one that gets on your nerves the most. Mm -hmm. It's the one that causes the most stress to you. When I decided to pay off one of my private student loans a few years ago, I prioritized that over everything because my mother was a co-signer and I got tired of her asking me about it. So I was like, <laughs> you know what, let me go ahead and pay this off. And so my mom is in the clear. And so for me, it was an annoying debt, um, paying that off first. And then I switched to the snowball method. Wow. I love that too. This is great. I'm so happy that we're doing this today because you are, well, first of all, I think you're brilliant and this, <laughs> this information is just priceless. So play on words, priceless, but <laughs> thank you for all of this. So uh, I love how you just talked about prioritizing the debts and what to pay off first. And I agree about that, uh, those credit cards with those high interest rates. Sometimes you don't realize that it's costing you so much with just to have that credit card. Absolutely. A lot of people don't realize how expensive their debt actually yes. is. Um, and that's why it's important to have regular check-ins with your finances and look at your statements and so forth. And looking at your statements is also a good practice, even if you're not paying off debt. If you're spending money, it's a good practice to look at your statements. I think at least once a quarter, looking at my statements, I uncover a mistake where I have to go back and correct it. So um, that's just another healthy financial practice that's in alignment with budgeting too that helps you get ahead financially because people make mistakes. And another one I adopted was checking um, my receipts. When I check out somewhere, the other day I went to the paint store to get some samples and he charged me for five instead of four. And that one sample was $12. But I mean, that's $12 I can put towards something else. Oh. And so just being mindful of checking your receipts and checking your statements. Wow. You know what? I don't do that. I, I don't think I have ever really been in the habit of checking my receipts every time. Like I, I will look over really important ones or, you know, whatever, but I don't do that every time. And I'm going to start doing that. It's, you know, and it's one of those things, even if you just, when you go to your car, you kind of look over and be like, did I buy all these things and so forth? Yes. Um, that happened to me. I bought a pair of pants. The pair of pants, it was, I was charged $200 more than <gasps> the pair of pants actually were because it had the wrong label on the pair of pants. Oh. Um, like it had the wrong, um, the skew with whatever oh. you scanned it, it had the wrong code on it versus a price tag. So it's the, there are simple mistakes that happen every day that could be costing you money. Wow. That's very good to know. That's a very, very good habit to get into. So how do you suggest someone pay down their debt if they're uh, living paycheck to paycheck? That can be tricky for some people because, you know, it is one of those things where it's like, what do I do? Do I tackle this debt? Do I save and so forth? Um, I always say if you're considering paying down debt or breaking the cycle of paycheck to paycheck, one of the things that contributes to a lot of people living paycheck to paycheck is not having money in savings. Mm -hmm. And so rather than prioritizing debt, it is prioritizing putting money aside in savings 
Because if we aggressively put money towards eliminating debt and we don't have savings, the emer- next time an emergency happens, you're going to create more debt. Mm-hmm. And so what I suggest is aggressively creating a savings fund that you feel comfortable with. Maybe that's $500. Maybe that's $1,000. Generally, whatever an emergency would cost you, most people an emergency is not going to be over $1,500 other than like major um, emergencies. So, you know, having $1,500 aside and then saying, all right, now I'm ready to aggressively attack my debts. And by in doing this, my strategy is to look at what I can afford to pay off and pay down and do that. You know, the good thing about now and living here in the U.S. and so forth, and I'm sure you have international listeners too, but most countries, you're not going to go to jail for having debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so take your time, even though debt could be a headache, if you are, if you really feel like your back is against the wall and it's, you know, paying your bills or paying off debt, pay your bills. That debt, it will be okay. You'll come back to it. We'll get ahead of things. But one of the best ways to get ahead is to find ways to make extra money outside of your primary income. And so earlier I mentioned that some people have an income issue and some people have a money management issue. We can address an income issue because we can find other ways to make money. We can sell things in our home. We can pick up a trade. We can monetize a hobby. We can bake cakes. There are so many different things you can do to bring in additional money that you can put towards paying down your debt. And so think about that as well. Your back is, might not be completely against the wall if you can pick up a um, pick up just extra income that you can use to eliminate that debt. I love that. I'm going to take a moment right now to remind the listeners about your website, My Fab Finance. So all of this information is, I know, on your website. So I don't want any of the listeners to forget to go to My Fab Finance because all of this is such great, great information for everyone. I want to go back to something you were just saying about the savings account. I think that's so important to start a savings account. And uh, tell me what you think about this the mindset of a savings account. I believe, and Philip and I, when we would start a savings account when we first got married, we had the mindset that we're going to start this and we're going to put this whatever we can afford, it was always a different amount in our savings account. And we're going to consider that something that we just have and we're we're not going to allow ourselves to think that we can just go take that money out anytime we want. We mm-hmm. would take whatever we thought we could afford and put it in our savings account and then forget about it because we wanted it to be there and to grow. And so yeah. we did have the mindset that we'd never put more in the savings account than we really felt like we could afford to put in there and go without that month because whatever was in the savings account was going to stay there. I love it because it's, you know, the opposite is essentially like yo-yo dieting, Mm -hmm. you know, how people put money in savings accounts and take it out, put it in, take it out. And you're using it for non-emergencies or things that aren't necessarily substantial enough for the need to dip into their savings account, but they're dipping in because it's there, they see it. So that's one of the things um, I, I definitely agree with you, Robin. That's why I recommend inconvenient savings accounts. So when we say inconvenient, it's not tied to your primary banking institution. It's tied to maybe an online bank or a bank that you won't, you're not going to check that bank account regularly because the only thing you're doing is essentially putting money in there. You're not taking money out of there. So you're not necessarily worried about the activity because you're not doing anything. If anything happens, it's because the bank did something and they took your money, but you didn't. And uh, I found that to be such a helpful, helpful practice for um, myself as well. I actually like to hide money for myself. So I have multiple savings accounts. And when 
you know, when mm -hmm. I being an entrepreneur and we have brand partnerships and so forth, when we get a nice healthy check in, I'll just put some money over here and put some money over there and forget it's there. So to the point where we recently we were moving and I was just looking at what I had available. I was like, oh, I didn't even know I had this over here. Great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so it is, I, it's great. And I love, I love, love that you guys committed to saying once it's there, it's there. Yes. Because too many people feel like, okay, I'll put it there now and I'll take it out next week. Yes. No, no, it's not no. how a savings account is supposed to work. That's you right. want to put your money it doesn't aside. have to be the same amount that you put in your savings account every month. It's only what you really can afford you that can. month or that week or what, whenever. It's, that's another thing that was really important to us was we don't have to commit. It's not going to be part of the budget where we commit the, the same amount every week or every month. It was always what we really felt that we could afford to take out of our budget, put into the savings account because we knew it was going to stay there. Because you're doing, it's doing something, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, that's what's important is to do something. To me, people get paralyzed, uh, unfortunately. And if I can't do it this way, or I can't do it perfectly, I'm not going to do it at all. And it's like, no, that's do right. something, do what you can. Yeah. And then do more when you can, that's but right. do what you can. That's right. So what about credit? Do you think, does everyone need credit? I personally do believe that everyone needs credit at one time or another, because there are going to be large purchases that you aren't going to be able to purchase when it with all cash. And I think that living a life without credit is just incredibly inconvenient. Mm -hmm. And you always kind of have to figure out ways to make things happen. And I like my life to be convenient. I want to be financially secure because I like convenience. I like paying for convenience when I need it to be. And uh, when you don't have credit, it's just very inconvenient. So mm -hmm. I think that every, uh, credit is your essentially your adult report card. Uh -huh. Imagine graduating from school, from grade school and high school without having a report card. Mm -hmm. Can't do it. It's how people determine how financially responsible you are. And so, yes, mm -hmm. everybody needs credit. Now, how you use it, that varies, but everyone needs credit. Yeah, right. And do you think everyone needs a credit card to build their credit? It's one of the easiest ways to build your credit. And people do like to see when you have a variety of different types of credit or creditors or lenders like to see when you have a variety of different types of credit on your credit report. Mm -hmm. So it's a good practice to have multiple forms, including a credit card, auto loan or a mortgage or some type of um, revolving and installment debt. So installment is where the payments are gonna stay the same each month, such as student loans, auto loan, or mortgage. Um, but then you have revolving where it's going to change, which is like a credit card because it's the payment changes with your usage. And so you want to have both of those because it helps with your credit profile. Mm -hmm. What are some tips for improving your credit score? I mean, the best tip I can give is to understand how credit works, because once you understand how it works, you can do anything um, and you will be more comfortable. So, but you know, for someone who's like, I don't have time to learn, Tanya, so what do I need to do? Keep your balances below 25% of your available limit. So that means if you have a card with a $1,000 limit, you don't want to spend more than $250 on that card because anything more than that can start to affect your credit score once you get over 30%. But keep it at 25% because sometimes, you know, you get charged the fee or whatever it may be or interest, it could push you over that 30% mark. Mm -hmm. So keep your balances below 25%. And then also minimize your inquiries because inquiries do affect your credit score. So when you shop around for credit, it does affect your credit score. And then I would say the last one um, is avoid collections. 
collections are like a dagger to your credit score. They are so harmful and so difficult to remove. And so by collections, I mean, you have an open account with someone, you don't pay it in a timely manner. And so they return, they give up on you essentially and turn it over to a collections company because they've washed their hands of you. That is literally one, it's one of the worst things that could happen mm. other than bankruptcies and so forth with your credit. So avoid those as possible. And you can avoid them by communicating with lenders, communicating with creditors and so forth. If you don't have it, you don't have it, but talk to them about what options they have so that you don't, they don't turn your account over to collections. Because oftentimes what happens is people just ignore them and they say, well, we can't get in contact with them. Let's wash our hands of it. Mm. But when you communicate with them, a lot of times they have programs and they're willing to work with you. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So it's it's very, very important to reach out to them and, and talk about it, discuss with them that you're having trouble and just do whatever you can to keep them from turning that over to a collection agency. Yeah. You do not want to deal with a collection agency because once it's on your credit, it's hard to get that off. I love it. It's that. hard to get the item off. And it, it, it I've seen it affect people's credit score. I've seen it drop people's credit score by 60 points wow. by having a collection item hit their credit report. Wow. And then they come to me and like, Tanya, how do I fix it? I'm like, we could have fixed this, fixed this if you would have picked the phone up. Um, because, because at the end of the day, like I, you know, I can't remove it. I can't get it off of your credit report. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth. But when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. I want to take a little break right now to do something that we do on every podcast, and it's called the drink of the day. So I think huh. it's a good time right now because you have given us so much good information that we should celebrate it right now. So I've picked a drink for our discussion today called the Fab Fizz, ah. <laughs> and I think it's just perfect for our conversation, so I'm going to describe it. It takes four to five mint leaves. It has one cucumber quartered, and you save a little of it for a fresh wheel for the garnish, and it also has a half tablespoon of simple syrup and four ounces of Prosecco. In a glass, you add the cucumber, the mint leaves, the simple syrup, and you muddle all of that together. Then you add ice and you fill it with the Prosecco. <laughs> Gently stir it and garnish it with the fresh cucumber wheel. And so I have one here that I want you to see. And so when our pandemic is over, I want to invite you to come in and we'll have this together. So cheers. That seems amazing. <laughs> I wish we were together today, but so I I'm, know. I'm holding this up and I'm going to have this in honor of you and this <laughs> wonderful conversation we're having. So for another day. <laughs> okay. Thank you. That, and I love that cup. Okay, great. All right. So I'm going to have a few more questions and then we're going to do something else that I think you'll really enjoy as well. And that's a, the second thing that we do with every podcast called the game of the day. Do you like playing games? I love playing games. I love when they're on podcasts too. They're fun. Good, 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 good. Okay, so how can someone learn more about the stock market and figure out which companies to invest in? Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, 
the stock market, that's another thing that can be daunting. I would say take advantage of the resources that are available, the free resources. Um, I did I re I did a free class um, that people can find online on Brit, Brit and Co. Um, on just understanding the stock market and so forth. And we make it really easy. It's a 20 minute class on understanding mm -hmm. the stock market. So look and see what free courses are out there and are available. Reading is always like, I love, you know, checking out books. The good thing is that the stock market has been operating the same way since the beginning, um, or at least for the past, you know, at least 20, 25 years. And so check out any books that you can find or purchase any books or rent them online, whatever um, you prefer to do. And just read up on it. Just start reading those basics. Reread anything that doesn't make any sense to you. And then understand that you also learn by doing. And so maybe set aside like $10, $20 that you don't feel, you know, that you feel comfortable investing and getting started investing with so that you can kind of see how that works, see what happens when you, you know, purchase those stocks and so forth. And then continue to go from there. Dip your toe in the pool. You don't have to jump all the way in when it comes to the stock market. Yeah, that's great. So let me ask you this. Is the housing market a good place to invest your money? So it depends on how much you have to invest. And it also depends on how soon you want to yield those returns. Because in some terms, you know, housing, it's not necessarily a next day profit. It's a profit that could take a couple of years. Um, and so if you need, you know, to see a return on your investment within days to months, maybe it's not the best option for you. But if you're able to hold on to those investments and kind of navigate and, and roll with the punches, then it might be a good investment. It's just important to think about all the additional expenses that would come along with real estate as an investment versus just purely putting your money into mutual funds or stocks or anything of that nature. But it is a great wealth creation vehicle. And um, anyone who has the, the personality for it should definitely consider it because you can make a good amount of money doing it. But you want to know what you're doing yeah. because I know some people can make it seem like it's a fail safe way, but it has its risk just like anything else. Right. So let me ask you this. Can you tell the listeners, what is the difference between a credit union and a traditional bank? So the difference between a credit union and a um, traditional bank is essentially a credit union is owned by its, um, its, its members. They call them members. So with a bank, you're a customer. With a credit union, you're members. You're invested into it. You're shareholders in this banking institution. A lot of times credit unions can be a lot more flexible and a lot more friendly and community oriented. Um, so you might find better interest rates as a result. If they make a profit, you might see some of those profits return to you, whereas a bank is a business. They are solely there to make money and so forth. The great thing is that both credit unions and, um, and banks are FDIC insured. Is, well, just make sure they have the eligibility to be FDIC insured. But if they are FDIC insured, your money is protected equally in both of them up to $100,000. And so um, you really, credit unions sometimes now, thankfully, they are up on technology the way that previous banks were able to do. So that was one of the drawbacks was that maybe you couldn't do your banking if you moved out of state or something and you're a member of a credit union. It's not the case anymore. Now we have national credit unions um, where they have branches throughout the country. Um, so you just have to decide what the, what you prefer. Me personally, in my household, we have a mix. Um, we have some of our money in with credit unions, and then we have some with the traditional bank. Our house account is with the traditional bank because I need to be able to go and touch our money and make withdrawals for purchases and so forth. However, my savings account is with a credit union because that's not something that I'm touching on a regular basis. So you can use both. 
Um, but the credit union is just tends to be member friendly. Huh, that's wonderful. So when do you think someone should start planning for retirement? Planning for retirement, I mean, that's one of those things where they say, you know, you should start planning for retirement as soon as you start working, um, because that gives your money, the, it, get, it you have the most benefit of your money working for you longer. So the longer that your money is invested, the more it can grow, the more compound interest works in your favor. But that's not to say if someone is 40 or in their 50s and hasn't started saving towards retirement that it's too late. You just have to save more aggressively and you probably would have to put more towards it to have a significant portion. But you also, in thinking about planning for retirement, think about what you want your retirement to look like. I know that my father was a military veteran. He went to work for the state and now he's going for a second retirement next year but i don't ever see my father not working until he just can't anymore like he's going to find something to do um he was talking about buying a boat and taking people out on fishing trips Uh um, in his retirement and so you also have to look at what your retirement is going to look like and if there are things that you're going to do to bring in revenue um but honestly as soon as you start bringing in income you should start if you're able to start putting money aside i wish I wish I would have started saving for retirement when I started working because I went back to my parents' house after I graduated from college and I didn't have any expenses, but I wasn't saving for retirement. And now with my expenses, I'm saving for retirement. So um, as soon as you're able is ideal. I think that's a great bit of information. So start your retirement savings, really the minute you get out of school and start working so that you can uh, plan ahead because Wow, it's like it seems like just yesterday that Philip and I got married, and like I just said earlier, we just celebrated forty-four years. And but yeah, it's just like it just you wake up one day and you're like, wow, where did the time go? So I feel like yeah, you should start planning the savings for that retirement the minute you get out of school and start that first job. Absolutely, aging is something. It's something interesting because even I think about like wow. That was 20 years ago? That uh-huh. feels like it was yesterday. And time really flies. <laughs> it does. Um, and that's the same as when people think about, well, um, I don't want to put this money aside. So, you know, I want to have it accessible. Time flies. Uh-huh. It'll be back in your hands before you know it. <laughs> um, and so it's just really taking advantage of that. Um, your money is going to work against you or it's going to work for you. Uh-huh. Uh, well, not your money, but money. Uh-huh. Money can work against your work for you. And so, you know, making that decision to put it away mm-hmm. so that it can work for you. Um, is really helpful. Can you explain to the listeners what a 401k is? Uh, So 401k is essentially a tax code. And so when you're thinking about what it means, it's essentially like how the IRS classifies it. But the best way to think about it is it's a employee funded retirement account or a retirement account that you set up through your employer. And so it allows you to contribute towards your retirement and usually allows your employer to also contribute something towards your retirement. So what most companies will find or most people will find is that they might match. And so they say, oh, we'll match up to 50% of your contributions or we'll match, you know, two to one or we'll match one to one, whatever you're contributing towards your 401k. So if you have a traditional job, then you most likely have a 401k. Someone like myself who is self-employed, I don't have a 401k. Um, I did when I was working, but when I left my job, I decided to roll that over into an IRA which is an individual retirement account, which I was able to set up with my financial advisor, but someone could walk into their bank account, banking institution and set one up. And so that allows you to plan for retirement as well, just independent of an employer. And I actually recommend that people have the opportunity 
to have an IRA and to have a 401k. Um, if you do work with an employer, that way you can also contribute outside of them. That way, if you leave that employer, you know that your retirement, um, your, your goals or your retirement, you're still able to contribute to your retirement with an account that you manage. Wow. How much do you recommend contributing to a 401k? I mean, that's relative. It's relative to mm-hmm. what people can afford to. I mean, uh-huh. ideally, I'd say max that thing out. Right. If you mm-hmm. have the income to max it out. But if not, I mean, you know, a hundred to two hundred fifty dollars a month um, is a good start. Maybe even fifty dollars. When I first got started, and I still wasn't making, I did fifty dollars. I made a lump sum deposit when I got my tax refund, and put the money in for my tax refund, and then just contributed fifty dollars a month initially. Mm-hmm. So just getting started, I, it's. I don't want people to get hung up on, oh, well, if I can't do 250, that's not enough. That's not so and so and so. Because I've separated that account intentionally, and I've seen that account that I was contributing $50 to every month over two years, I've seen that gain $6,000 just this year with it just sitting there because I opened up a completely different account. But that money is just sitting there and that $50 a month has now you know, generated $6,000 in a year. So it adds up over time. Um, so just get started. Wow. I, I feel like I'm jumping around on topics here, but I, I don't want this time together to end without covering everything, I feel like. So uh, forgive me if I if you feel like I am jumping around on these topics, but I really, really appreciate your uh, advice on all of this, uh, all of these different topics. So um, do you have any advice for couples merging finances for the first time? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely having that financial conversation with your partner um, and just deciding what strategy works best for you. Because every financial, every money management strategy might not work for every couple. Um, I remember when me and my husband first got married, someone told us, well, merge all your finances together. And if you don't merge all your finances together, then you don't trust him. And I was like, but I like to have my own money. Uh-huh. Like, I, and you know, and so do what works for you. That didn't work for me. And so we do something different where we have what I call together apart. And so we both have our own accounts. Then we have a house account and we contribute a certain amount to our house account. And then we have our own accounts to do what we want to do without question. As long as we're meeting our household goals, don't bother me with about what I do with my money. Um, And that works for us. But some people do prefer to put all their money into one bank account. And then some people don't ever merge finances. And that's okay too. You just have to decide what works for you and your partner and having that conversation with them, finding out what page they are on and what they feel comfortable with. And, you know, hopefully you two can meet in the middle or you're on the same page. Right, right. I agree. I think that is a conversation for each couple. And I think it's something that they should agree on. So at the top of the podcast, I mentioned that money is a taboo topic. And we really kind of wanted to stop feeling that way. But this question I'm going to ask you kind of lends back towards that taboo feeling. How do you feel about money and finances being discussed amongst friends? I think that it depends. You have to know who your friend is. Um, Everyone is not your friend, so everyone shouldn't know your financial situation. But if you feel comfortable with it, then yeah, money, I think that by having, money is money, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day. And we've seen things happen. We've seen wars waged because of money. We've seen friendships and relationships ruined because of money. But that's not really the money's fault. It's the, you know, it is the intentions and the behaviors behind it and the power that people give to money in their situation. But you think about, like I always say in my um, 
you know, I, even my background, I'm not a traditional financial educator. I have tattoos and I've done, you know, so many jobs before I got into the space, but I'm very honest about my past because I say, you know, as long as you own your story, no one can use it against you. And I think that's the same when it comes to money. If you own your financial situation, like no one can use it against you. It's like, yeah, I, I filed, yeah, I filed for bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. You know, like don't, you can't use it against me because I own that aspect of my life and I'm not ashamed of it. Um, so I think it, when it comes to financial conversations, people should think that way. People should say that. I mean, I guess I'll clarify. I haven't filed for bankruptcy, but that was a hypothetical situation mm-hmm. um, for anybody who might feel shame around, you know, a scenario such as that. Um, so, yeah, I think that you should have conversations, but you also should know who you can have those conversations with. Because mm-hmm. you don't just have financial conversations with, you know, yeah. I have papers here today. I'm not just going to talk to them about my money. Um, right. But um, when it comes to people who are close, my younger sister and so forth, my best friend, my mother and father, mm-hmm. we have money conversations. I straight up ask them, you know, certain things when it comes to their money, because People, oftentimes people have questions when it comes to things and that can help you resolve some of your questions. Um, sometimes people need help or general, genuine assistance mm-hmm. and it enables you to assist someone. Um, and then sometimes it's just like a level of camaraderie, like, wow, you're doing the right thing too. Me too. Like, mm-hmm. let's celebrate. Let's congratulate each other. Let's have a fab fizz. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. So in your opinion, do you feel like the pressures of social media impact how people spend their money? Too much, too much. <laughs> I mean, and even me as a financial educator, sometimes I find myself, hey, dial back, get offline. Uh-huh. Um, because it, social media is essentially a highlight reel. So we're continuously comparing ourselves to the accomplishments and the highlights of others. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we're comparing ourselves in the middle of that low light. And one of the big spending triggers for a lot of people is self-esteem or feeling like they belong. And so the thing you want to do is spend money to kind of feel like you are on par to these other people who you see living their best lives. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, absolutely. I think that is something that this generation and the following generations really has to contend with because when the saying keeping up with the Joneses, it's no longer your neighbor. It could be someone from social media who lives in a completely different continent than you and you're still comparing yourself to them because you become part of each other's lives because of how interconnected we are now. So yes, absolutely. And um, if you feel like you are um, violating whatever your your goals are when it comes to your finances or you are spending more because of social media, maybe it's time to just kind of, you know, sign off for a little bit. Take a moment away from social media. Life goes on. You'll continue living your life and so forth. And I've actually done that a couple of times and it felt so comforting just not to be on social and just to focus and be present in my own life. So yeah, if you feel like you're completely constantly being tempted, then maybe just take a break, go on a social media fast. I completely agree. There are so many people struggling with lower income these days. So I'd love to hear you speak to to managing money in these unprecedented times. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to the conversation about savings and debt. In these unprecedented times, you really want to minimize unnecessary expenses and really lock in on your savings. If you have a substantial or a decent amount of money in savings, then yay. That's amazing. Um, And just really focus on building that savings. If you don't have enough money in savings, then uh, two things I would recommend is one, looking for what help and assistance is available because there's so many programs out there right now to help people who are financially stretched. Um, if, If you need, if you need assistance, you know, in the form of government assistance, you know, 
get it because sometimes that can get you ahead. I mentioned earlier that I was making $27,000 in New York City. My rent was $1,000 a month. I I was on, I had to get food stamps and like, you know, from there to here I am now. So there's so many other people who do what you need to do and take whatever help is available so you can get to the next step. So um, definitely do that. Um, and then minimize any unnecessary expenses, really take an audit. Some of us, because automated payments are great because it helps us ensure we're paying things on time, but automated payments can be bad because then you forget that you were even paying for it. And you've been paying for a gym membership when gyms have been closed for the past six months. So, you know, you want to make sure that you're not paying for something that you're not using either. So make sure you're auditing your expenses. That's great. That, you are just so knowledgeable. So I and I have just really, really enjoyed this conversation that we've had. What's next for my fab finance? Well, I mean, we're just continuing to find ways to connect with our audience. We have our Blue Ribbon Club, which is a um, a supported course um, and journey to helping people break the cycle of living paycheck to paycheck. So we have members and they do monthly office hours with me and so forth. So we're going to continue to grow that. I'm celebrating my five-year anniversary, uh, my five-year self-employment anniversary coming up. Um, and so I'll be doing my class, Financial Preparing to Be Your Own Boss, for people who are looking to become their own boss. Mm. And we're just going to continue listening to the audience and finding out what people need yes. and continue to plug those holes. Two years ago when I had my son, I did Financial Preparing for a Baby to help people get prepared for the financial whirlwind that is parenthood. Um, and so just continue to pe meet people in that manner. Wow. Congratulations on the five years and, and everything else. This is just, I'm so excited for you and, and just thrilled. Congratulations. Are you ready to play a game? I'm ready. I'm always <laughs> ready to play a game. Okay. All right. So this game is called Dollars and Cents. And for this game, uh, we're going to see just how much you know about the history of money. And there is oh. a blend, <laughs> there's a blend of multiple choice and true or false. So Secret Squad, you can also play along and just see how many you get right. Okay, so number one, the United States first minted the Sacagawea dollar coin in what year? And it's multiple choice, so I'm going to give you the three. A, okay. 1995, B, 2000, C, 2007. B, 2000? So the answer is B, 2000. <laughs> what year, what, okay, the next question, what year was the very first modern credit card issued? A, 1964, B, 1950, or C, 1946? 64. Oh, no, it was B, 1950. 1950, oh, man. Yes, but, that's okay. so funny, too, because guess what? That's the year my husband was born. So I guess credit I'll never card. forget that <laughs> credit card. It's his fault. But you're I the credit age of card credit card. Credit card's the same age as you. <laughs> yeah. It's his fault. We love credit cards. Okay. Number three, true or false. U.S. money is printed on a blend of cotton and linen. True. It is true. 75% cotton and 25% linen. Huh. It's not paper. Yep. <laughs> it's not paper. Okay. <laughs> Who is on the U.S. $100 bill? Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, or Benjamin Franklin? Franklin. Yes, Benjamin Franklin. Okay. <laughs> oh, I These guess are I, good. <laughs> I, just, I just realized that's why they call him the Benjamin. 
the the Benjamin. Okay. You know, I was trying to think about that. I was like, there has to be a song. There has to be a song. And I was like, I think it's about the Benjamins. Yeah. Benjamin, yeah. Okay. But I didn't realize that actually it was the $100 bill. Okay. So the next question, what is the average lifespan of an American $1 bill? A, five years. B, 10 years. C, three years. That's a good one. The average lifespan. I'd say lifespan. three years. It's A, five years. Oh, I was almost going to choose that one. I just can't believe it. Five years of an that's, average That's a lot of span. That is. That's a lot. Huh. Okay. Next, how many times does the word 20 appear on the U.S. $20 bill? A, three, B, five, C, seven. Going to go with B? B is right. Five times. <laughs> The word 20 appears five times on the $20 bill. Huh. Wow. I'm going to look at my money closer. <laughs> I am I too. I have too. Okay. True or false. My money is there, is there. Good. Yeah. Okay. True or false. A woman's portrait has never appeared on U.S. paper money. True. It's false. Martha Washington's portrait was used on the face of the $1 silver certificate of 1886 and 1891 and the back of the $1 silver certificate of 1896. My goodness. I did not know that. I I could say I wasn't there for that, but I wasn't there for credit cards either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so about how much does it cost to manufacture an American penny? So A is one-tenth of a cent. B, exactly one cent. C, 2.4 cents. Oh, this is a good question. Um, We will go with B. Oh, it is C. I was going to say C. I was like, no, there's no way we spend more than it's worth to make it. I know. I was thinking the same thing. But it's 2.4 cents to manufacture an American penny. It needs to worth two cents. That just seems so silly. <laughs> I, I know they're made out of copper, you know? Yeah. And, huh. wonder, we should quit making pennies. <laughs> we could really make a difference in the budget if we quit making pennies. Stop making pennies because they're too expensive. Oh, I wonder how much paper money is to make. I wonder too. Well, cotton money. Yeah, we shouldn't money. make it out of linen. And what 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 is it made out of cotton? And I, linen? Yep, we should make it out of paper. No. <laughs> Okay, last question. What is the most common paper denomination in the U.S.? A, $10, B, $1, C, $20. $1. It is $1. There we go. <laughs> and we shouldn't call it paper because it's not. It's cotton and linen. <laughs> and, yeah, the bill. And, and yeah. so hard. Yeah. It's so hard. But I'm sure that that wasn't durable. <laughs> that was a fun game. I wish we had more. We don't. I know that was a really fun game. That was fun. Okay, well, that's all we have for today. And I'm so sad that our time is over because it was so much fun and so interesting. Thank you so much for having me, Robin. I I really enjoyed our time. No, Tanya, I just, I loved it too. And so thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with the Secret Squad. It was just so much wonderful, wonderful information. Can you tell the listeners where they can find out more about you and MyFab Finance? 
Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for having me. Um, people can find out about MyFab Finance at MyFabFinance.com mm -hmm. and I'm uniformly branded on all social media platforms as at MyFabFinance. Wonderful. So Secret Squad, go to my Instagram page and tell me the best piece of advice you have learned on today's episode. I love hearing your feedback and visit I've Got a Secret with RobinMcGraw.com for fun extras, recipes, and much more. See you next time. Bye-bye.